talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Wednesday Buckeye Talk. We're live in Atlanta. At least two of us are Doug Maurice and Stephen Means. Nathan Baird winding his way here on uh, hopefully not too much of a snowy road situation. Uh, I drove in yesterday. Everyone has travel issues. We get it. But we are here to cover uh, Ohio State, Georgia. And we had interviews on Tuesday. We had Ohio State offense and Georgia defense. That means we had Kevin Wilson. We had CJ Stroud. We had Emeka Abuka and Marvin Harrison Jr. We had Paris Johnson. We had Chip Trainum. And then from the Georgia side of things, we had Chris Smith. We had their two co-defensive coordinators, Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp. Didn't get Jalen Carter. Didn't get Keely Ringo. Um, but I think we got a sense, Stephen. I like these on-site interviews. I always say I try to wait until as late in the week as possible to make picks because I do sort of believe in both site vibes. This, you know, these these crossover interviews, and then on Wednesday we'll have uh, the reverse. We'll have the Ohio State defense, Jim Knowles, Tommy Eichenberg, people like that. JT Tuimolowau and the Georgia offense. The the media day, I think, which is on Thursday when you talk to everybody, I think is the best place for vibes. But I don't know. I was getting some vibes. Did you get some vibes Tuesday? Were you you know feeling vibes? Yeah, I think we spent the better of the last two weeks very much convincing ourselves how how they can compete, maybe even win this game, and. I don't want to say that's been swayed since being here, but I do feel like Georgia won day one when it comes to just vibes. And you can kind of feel the intensity coming off of some of these players when they're talking about stuff. And then obviously we're here with Georgia media, so you get to talk to them about their team as well. I would say day one of vibes, Georgia maybe won just because they talk it just as much as maybe they play it. So we'll get into that. There's a particular thing that is staring us right in the face, but I think possibly is being underplayed. I don't know. I'll be, I'll be curious to see if you think it's a big deal or not. But that's a tease. Let's talk about a little bit of the news. One is that Mayan Williams was supposed to be one of the Ohio State players that spoke on Tuesday. We don't want to read too much into things, but it changed. Mayan Williams did not talk, and Chip Trainum did talk. And I was like, oh, starting running back spot. They switched the guys. So that's not what that means. It's not what it means. It's not what it means. But I do think we've been pretty good this year on things happening in the middle of the week and us being like, oh, I don't know. That seems like it could be a thing, right? You see you're sitting in a room and a guy walks out of a room. Here comes Denzel Burke or like you're walking down a hallway and there's a guy that's like, well, that doesn't seem right. And then it's like, no, 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 it's nothing. And we're like, I don't know if it's nothing. And then you get to the game and it's like, oh, no, it's something. So you talked to Chip Trainum, and the story is what? Like Mayan Williams is just a little bit sick, which very probably is the case. But, you know, I don't know, 10% raise an eyebrow here. Yeah, the exact quote was, Mayan's good. He's just a little under the weather right now. He's straight. He's going to be ready to go. So, of course, now I have to ask okay. all the other offensive players. And But that's the initial quote on what's going on with Mayan Williams. Okay. So what was the Chip Trainum vibe? This guy? The trip train of story <laughs> remains like if we thought it, I thought it was crazy. It was crazy when it was like 2020 and it was, I don't know, it was Trey Sermon, the running back as Master Teague, the running back. And then Trey Sermon karate chopped everybody for two games. And it was like, oh, no, that I don't think Chip Trainum's going to be Trey Sermon. But did it feel like, yes, OK, let's still assume eh, half an eyebrow raised. Let's still assume Mayan Williams is the starting running back by every indication in the Peach Bowl. Did Chip Trainum sound like a guy who's going to be part of the plan? He did. He, I mean, and he he started out. We started asking first of all. I asked him how long have you been a running back, and he said since the Iowa week he's been there full time. So it wasn't this dance of we're going to be here and then we're going to be here and then eventually he settled in. No, it was a combination of seeing all the injuries, seeing opportunity, and it was obviously pretty clear that Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers weren't coming off the field. So he went to the coaching staff and it was like. This is how I can probably best help the team. And so they allowed him to do so. He tried out the linebacker thing, partly because of how deep the running back room was. But he's been there ever since. And the only problem was heading into the Michigan game, he had only had one carry because as soon as the opportunity for him to get more carries happened, he was also hurt for the Maryland game. And so it does seem like this is going to be a long-term thing, the way he was talking 
Because he, he was like, I don't know, it's up to coaches whether I stay here long term. And then we were like, well, they say they leave it up to you guys. He was like, well, then, yeah, it sounds like I'm going to be here. So I would expect him going hmm. forward to be a running back. So that would, assuming mine comes back, that gives you five with him, Mayan Williams, Travion Henderson, Dallin Hayden, is that four? and Evan Pryor, of course, getting healthy. That's a full room, yeah. which probably helps offset the fact that you didn't get a running back in this class if instead you're taking a veteran and moving him back into the room. It's like getting a guy in the portal. Last year, they yeah. got a linebacker in the portal, and this year, they're getting a running back in the portal. It just so happens to be the same guy. It's like, That's oh, true. oh, okay. Hey, did you get the, we got this guy from Arizona State? Man for like 500 yards. It's like, oh, it's a pretty good portal addition. Okay, so that was that was sort of like the, oh, mine's not here. But again, we'll, we'll let you know if you should raise more than a maybe like an eighth of an eyebrow about that one. One of the other things we talked about, you spent a lot of time with Chip. I spent a lot of time with Kevin Wilson who is the head coach at Tulsa and is still the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. And this is one of those things, Stephen, that, and the way I wrote it was, eight years ago, this was like a big deal because Tom Herman was going to be the head coach at Houston. And he was trying to get Ohio State through the playoff. And the obvious difference there is Tom Herman was calling the plays. Kevin mm-hmm. Wilson's not calling the plays. So this is not as imperative as that was. But also – this is the norm. It's almost like if you're in the playoff and you're not losing a coordinator, maybe something's wrong. Georgia won the national title last year when their defensive coordinator, Dan Lanning, had been hired by Oregon as its head coach. Kirby Smart got through the mm-hmm. 2015 playoff with Alabama after having he would been hired by Georgia. The one that's screwy is Lane Kiffin, got hired by Florida Atlantic in the middle, right before the playoff started, stayed, and then they whacked him in between the yep. playoff in between the semifinal and the title game, and then they lost to Clemson. And it was like, well, that got screwed up. But that was Saban and Kiffin, and sometimes that gets screwy. So this is normal. And, and Stephen, I did think in the end, like, it's I, – I think it's nothing. I mean, I really do think it's nothing. Everybody says it's fine while it happens. And then when you talk to the coaches later, like, years later, like, Kirby Smart now says that Bama to Georgia transition, oh, it was so stressful. Oh, it was so crazy, right? But it, it was fine. I don't think it hurts – the team. I really don't think it hurts the team that's losing the coach. I think it makes the person crazy for a month. Yeah. And they look back and they probably get gray hair and they probably gain 10 pounds and they probably get bags under their eyes. But Kevin Wilson will be fine. This isn't a Kevin Wilson podcast. I, I don't think there's a negative effect on Ohio State. I think there would have been more of a negative effect if they had just let him go. And Kevin Wilson said he was open to anything. He wanted to stay, but he wasn't going to ask to stay. He just said to Ryan Day, I'll do whatever you want. And Ryan Day said, well, I want you to stay. And he said, good, I want to stay. So he's staying, and he said, you know, as we knew, he was off the road recruiting. He didn't re- recruit for Ohio State anymore. Keenan Bailey was recruiting in his spot even before they officially announced Keenan Bailey is taking his spot as the tight ends coach. So when it was like recruiting week, then he was doing Tulsa stuff because all the other Ohio State coaches were out on the road recruiting. And so he that part of his job doesn't exist anymore. So he wasn't like bailing on his Ohio State job. And then he said when it was football time, I was doing football time. He said he's like 90 percent like in on all the football stuff and needs to do at Ohio State. So I feel like they've maybe lost 10% of Kevin Wilson, but they won a national title when the guy who actually had the play sheet in his hand, Tom Herman, was doing the same thing. So I, I think it's fun to talk about. He pulled out. He has three cell phones, and he pulled them out. This is his personal cell Kevin phone. Wilson this is his Ohio State news <laughs> cell phone. Uh, he loved it. God, he loves it. <laughs> and then this is his Tulsa cell, cell phone, and it was – it was really funny. It was really funny. He pulled out his personal cell phone, or maybe it was his personal or his Ohio State one, and he ha- he had that one in his hand. And Austin Ward said, "You haven't been answering that one." It was funny. It was like, "Oh, he's not mm-hmm. he's not turning reporters' calls. He's he's trying to do nine jobs at once." So, do you have any concern? This guy's been a, a, an important part, and I want to talk about that. This guy's been a big part of Ohio State. Do you have any concern about Kevin Wilson having divided interests here? If he was calling plays, I'd probably have a little bit more concern, but it is more him just giving suggestions and then Ryan Day doing what he wants to do anyway on Saturday. I think even with that still, we've been here before in 2019 when Jeff Halfley was trying to split two jobs and, you know, get his program going at Boston College while also trying to be here as the main play caller and prepare for a Clemson team. And things started out well, and then they didn't, you know, they started giving up stuff and it, 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 
it can back. It'll be one of those things where if Ohio State has 17 points on Saturday, we're going to go, oh, it's because Kevin Wilson had his hat in two different places and was thinking about 30 million, especially now, because not only is he trying to get his program started, he's probably paying attention to the portal. He's probably trying to keep a recruiting class together. He's trying to introduce himself to new players, hire staff. It's 30 million extra NIL stuff. It's 30 million extra things because of where college football is today. So I'm not overly concerned, but I do know that if Ohio State's offense doesn't show up, we're going to go, oh, this is why. Versus if they score 45 points, you're going to go, oh, they made, they did all this in spite of what Kevin Wilson was doing. This is how much it didn't matter. I think if they have offensive issues, I think it's mostly going to fall on Ryan Day regardless because of, I mean, some people have questions about Ryan Day's play calling at this point in time and they point to why aren't you more aggressive and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. as to your point of like, if it's work, it's if if they're good, it's fine. If they're not good, then you look for blame. I, that's absolutely right. The Kevin Wilson legacy, I think, is an interesting one here because I, like there isn't really going to be a legacy, right? I don't think people are going to look back and say, oh, man, Kevin Wilson, how about that guy? But they probably should at least a little bit. They're 67 and 8 since he got here. And he and Ryan Day in tandem came to clean up the Tim Beck, Ed Warner mess. And Ryan Day was Tim Beck and Kevin Wilson was Ed Warner. And it just so happened that of those two guys, they came in, they were co-coordinators when they got here in 2017. And then Ryan Day got NFL offers and to make sure he stayed, they, they, I think in 18, Ryan Day was the offensive coordinator without a co, but Kevin Wilson was still the co-offensive coordinator. And it's like, mm-hmm. if there's one co, doesn't there have to be another co? Can you have a singular half? Doesn't there have to be, there's the matching locket, right? What do you mean? There's no matching locket. They, they gave him a locket. And then they were like, oh, Ryan Day, you can throw away your half of the locket. Here's a new locket. And Kevin Wilson was like, but I still have my half of the locket. It was kind of weird. But the bottom line is this. He and Ryan Day came in at the same time to fix this offense. Kevin Wilson actually had a longer resume than Ryan Day at that time. Kevin Wilson was coming off being the head coach in Indiana. He was he'd been, He resigned like a month before Ohio State hired him. Like Ohio State scooped him up quick. And then Ryan Day came in. Ryan Day had never been a coordinator, never been a head coach, right? This was like he'd coming up being a quarterback's coach in the NFL, but Ryan Day was the play caller. So Kevin Wilson took a little bit of a backseat to Ryan Day. And then Ryan Day very quickly ascends and is the head coach and Kevin Wilson stays and Kevin Wilson stays. And I, I keep, I've, I've just always sort of a thought of him as like the consigliere of like, I'm, I'm the guy over here. Like you're the boss, Ryan, but I'm the guy. Hey, what do you think? What do you think of this? And Kevin Wilson will let you know because Kevin Wilson helped shape modern spread offense in college football with what he did at Northwestern and what he did at Oklahoma. And that's how he got the head job at Indiana. This guy is like an offensive brain. And in the end, Stephen, I think it was a mutually beneficial situation where Kevin Wilson, by his pure resume, was overqualified for the job he had at Ohio State, a non-play calling co-offensive coordinator or offensive coordinator, but he's not calling the plays. This guy had called plays for a long time and had been a head coach. He was overqualified for that. He also left Indiana because of alleged mistreatment of injured players. He did not leave in a good situation. He did not leave in a good situation, and he had to rehab himself. He had to rehab his career, and I certainly had questions when Ohio State very, 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 very quickly jumps in on a guy who had just been forced out in murky circumstances. And Gene Smith vouched for him. Urban Meyer vouched for him. Gene Smith said, I talked to Fred Glass, the Indiana AD. You know, this is all good. And in the end, now, the things that he was alleged to have done wrong in Indiana, like, you don't have control of that as a co-offensive coordinator. So it's not, you know, and again, in the list of things, I'm not going to try to compare misdeeds, but he, he, he wasn't in charge of the things that he was alleged to have done incorrectly at Indiana. In the end, I think it's almost a perfect six-year run, Stephen, of Ohio State won a lot. Ohio State completely changed how it plays offense. Ryan Day had an experienced guy that has a big brain in the room. Ryan Day had a guy that he could turn to and say, Kevin, what do you think? And Kevin had a lot there. And in the end, Kevin Wilson got what he wanted, which is another shot to be a head coach. He's 61 years old. He's going to go go be a head coach at Tulsa. That's a good job. Everybody, when you jump from Ohio State, you want to go somewhere where you can win and you can recruit. A place like Houston where Tom Herman went, a place like Tulsa where Kevin Wilson's doing, that's that mid-level kind of school where you can do that. You have a chance to win. Tulsa's a pretty good job. 
worked out. I don't think, it, you know, if we do a list, Stephen, of the 20 best assistant coaches in, in Ohio State history, I don't think Kevin Wilson's on it. It's a pretty good six-year run, and I think he mattered. He was overqualified. They got him in a weird spot because of how he left Indiana. He's pretty smart, and he knows what's up, and he's been around the block. And I think Kevin Wilson helped Ohio State for six years, and Ohio State absolutely helped Kevin Wilson because he would not be getting the shot at Tulsa without what he was able to do with the Buckeyes for the last six seasons. Yeah, I think Kevin Wilson benefited because he got to get a job. I don't know how many people were standing up to hire him a month in when you're going through the stuff that he was going through. Maybe most people are looking at that going, let me cool off from there and let's see what comes from it. And so Ohio State took a chance on him in a way that, quite frankly, they didn't have to. They didn't have to hire Kevin Wilson. So that's where he benefited. I think you get a six-year run. The benefit for Ohio State is they got to keep a guy like that for six years. Because under any other circumstances, there's no way Kevin Wilson is here for six years, especially through a coaching transition. He probably leaves when Urban Meyer retires and somebody scoops him up to hire them. He gets a Tulsa-level job in twenty after the 2018 season in most situations, but you're still waiting on some of that sense to wear off, so he has to stick around a little bit longer. And so now you have this guy that – because your head coach is also an offensive-minded guy who's the play caller, there's this extra guy who really shouldn't be here. And we're not really completely sure what he does on game day, but he's here. He's kind of like this this crutch for Ryan Day to lean on. And it became – think about it like this. When Ryan Day caught COVID in 2020 and couldn't play – couldn't be there for the Michigan State game, how beneficial is it that you've got a guy like – not only do you have a play caller, you have a play caller of Kevin Wilson's caliber who can step right in and pick up where you left off. And they were doing creative stuff just like they would if Ryan Day had been the head coach that day. And so – Going forward, that crutch is now gone. Now, how does Ryan Day replace that? He replaces it with Keenan Bailey. So we'll see who ends up being a coordinator in that role. But it's going to be different now because there isn't the benefit of a guy who needs to rehab his career here when he's going out to find a coordinator who's going to have to agree to not call plays. Jeff Halfley came for a year and left because he was too yep. good. Mike Yursich came for a year as the quarterback's coach when Ryan Day hired him and left because it didn't quite mesh. Um, you know, like we, we see situations and like sometimes when a guy leaves, then you, you really miss him. And they just didn't have to go through that with Kevin Wilson. I do think in the end, he was an offensive lineman as a player. He has a lot of offensive line expertise. He has quarterback expertise at all, but I do, again, just some of the time, the time I spent in the, in the, the, the playroom, the film room with the offensive staff, you know, Ryan Day really, Ryan Day knows what he wants to do, throw the ball. But that's his expertise. He's a quarterback. He's a passing game guy. doesn't mean he doesn't have a full handle on the offense. Ryan Day knows what's up from a passing standpoint, especially. Kevin Wilson. Kevin Wilson had, had I think, a prominent role in the run game. Like, right, right, Kevin Wilson really helped shape this as much as Justin Fry, as much as Tony Alford are very involved in that. Kevin Wilson has a lot of ideas about how you block certain things and hitting holes and, like, what do we try this here? And, I mean, he – so that's – and now, like, if you promote Keenan Bailey and like you promote Keenan Bailey into that spot, Keenan Bailey as you know, basically the assistant receivers coach is coming at it a little more from a pass game standpoint. Brian Hartline from a pass game standpoint. This means they're going to have to they're going to put a little more, I think, on Justin Fry and Tony Alford because Kevin Wilson had a loud voice when you're talking about the run game at Ohio State. So, I, I think he he served Ohio State well. I think he did his job. I think he got. We always joked about it. You put a microphone in Kevin Wilson and it in front of Kevin Wilson and he never wanted to let it go because he thought he never, I don't think he ever stopped thinking of himself as a guy ready to lead a program. And so I'm not like you kind of is he's verbose, which is great for us, but it's like that guy will talk football with you forever, which is oh, awesome. Yeah. But I think he has a lot of ideas, man. He has a lot of ideas he wants to share. And for six years, he, he backburnered it probably 30% from what his natural thing would be where he had built himself in his career. And now he's going to pour all of that into Tulsa. So, you know, good luck to Kevin Wilson. And it's one of those things, like someone, someone asked us straight. It's like, listen, man, like you're probably not going to win a national title at Tulsa. So if you're ever going to win a national title in your career, like this might be it. So, and he's like, well, it's not about me. It's about us. Like this is our chance to win a national title, which of course is the right answer. But you know, he was he was on part of a really good Oklahoma staff, and uh, I just think it's you know it's one of those things again. Like Greg Schiano was a very similar kind of situation to Kevin Wilson as a guy who had run a program, 
doesn't work out, gets fired by Tampa Bay Buccaneers, comes here. And like Greg Schiano wound up leaving in like, not disgrace, but in like, well, your defense stunk. Like mm-hmm. the thing that you were in charge, like you have to leave. Like you, you need to go away now. Like that wasn't good enough. And again, maybe because he was never fully in charge of his side of the ball, it didn't reach that point. But, you know, I think Kevin Wilson probably could have been here as long as he wanted to be here because I do think he he did what Ohio State asked of him. So good luck to Kevin Wilson. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the thing that is staring us in the face, and I just want to make sure we're not looking past it. We'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Lamarie, Stephen Means. Stephen, did you and Nathan talk about your travel woes on the pod yesterday when I was driving? We did. Okay. So I drove yesterday because my flight got canceled. And so Stephen had a bunch of flights canceled and uh, Nathan had flights canceled. The whole world had flights canceled. So for the pod Thursday, we will all be here. Um, so it's just crazy times, man. Crazy times. But thank goodness. Whew. I just checked with one of the Michigan guys because I was like, what is happening? How are the Michigan writers in Phoenix? Because you can't drive to Phoenix. You cannot. You can't drive. I mean, you can. You will probably not make it, though. (laughs) You will, will, like, pull in, like, at halftime of the game. It's like, it took me six days to drive to Phoenix. But uh, the Michigan guy I talked to, Aaron McMahon of MLive.com, who has been on this podcast more than once, said he just, like, had, like, a normal flight. and He just, like, got out and got to Phoenix and was fine. So I was like, that's amazing. So good luck. And and you can see, like, the reporters – you know, I'm reading stuff from reporters live at the Fiesta Bowl covering Michigan. Mm-hmm. Donovan Edwards still has a cast in his right hand. You know, like the, one of their safeties might have moved a linebacker. It's all these things that matter because guess what? Ohio State might play Michigan. So I'm glad those guys are there. But as it turned out, it just was very convenient for everybody. We are certainly not the only reporters covering Ohio State that wound up driving. And, of course, Athens, Georgia is an hour from here. So the Georgia guys didn't have to drive anywhere, which is part of the, what I want to talk about. Okay. I think Ohio State is greatly helped by playing indoors. And this is not a newsflash, but I think it possibly solves everything. And it's a huge advantage, and it's the reason they might win. I don't exactly mean that 100%, but I was crunching the numbers. Like, there's this idea, you know... We, we certainly have referenced, Stephen, the idea that like, oh, the last time that Ohio State really let it rip and had a sort of a high-flying offense was against Clemson in the semifinal in 2020. And it's like, well, that's also the last time they played inside. So wow, is it really? They've played in nice – they've played in nice weather, right? Then they but went and played in the in yeah, Miami against in, Alabama. It was, it's out, they played in the Rose Bowl. They've played yeah, 26 consecutive games outdoors. Hmm. Never in plastic. Ne- yeah. So so the, they've played inside four times under Ryan Day, and I don't count the 2018 TCU game where he was the head coach while Urban Meyer was suspended. That was at Jerry Dome. So I'm counting since 2019. Um, and in those games, they have gained 492 yards, 516 yards, 513 yards, and 639 yards. They averaged 540 yards of offense indoors. And those four games were against Wisconsin in the Big Ten title game, Clemson in the semifinal, Northwestern in the Big Ten title game, and Clemson in the semifinal. Those four defenses that they faced by the efficiency metric that I like to cite from football outsiders, which is just a one defensive thing, all four of those defenses at the end of the year, after Ohio State did those things to them, they were all still ranked in the top ten. Wisconsin was number 10 that year. Clemson was three. Northwestern was number one. And Clemson was six. Now, I'm not saying that means they were Northwestern was the best defense. They weren't. But it's not, Stephen, like they were going to these indoor fields and blowing apart terrible defenses. In all those games, they got in track meets against teams that had good defenses. Georgia has a very good defense. Georgia probably has the best defense of this group. Georgia is number one in that defensive efficiency metric that I'm citing here. But again, these are top 10 defenses. They didn't pile up points. They scored 34, 23, 22, and 49 in those games. They threw the ball really well in three of the four games. And then the one game was like the weird game where 
uh, Chris Olave had COVID and Justin had kind of a weird game. And then Trey Sermon karate kicked people in the neck for four quarters. So they only threw for 114 in that game against Northwestern, but they gained 513. They outgained Northwestern 513 to 329. The Clemson games, even when they lost to Clemson, they outgained them 516 to 417. When they beat Clemson, they outgained them 639 to 444. They moved the ball. Inside, they move the ball. They don't score as much as they always need to. This is like a red zone conversation. You got to cash stuff in. We know that. But C.J. Stroud has never played inside. Marvin Harrison, when I was asking him about this stuff, very pointedly said, I've never played indoors. And I'm very excited to. His eyes lit up. I think it's huge. And I know Georgia has played inside a lot. Georgia has played inside seven times in the last four years, in this time when Ohio State has played inside four times. They wind up playing in this place a lot because the yeah. SEC championship game is, is here in Atlanta. They've played preseason games here. They've, mm-hmm. they've played here a lot. They have played LSU, Baylor, Cincinnati, Alabama, uh, LSU, again, Oregon, and Bama. So, yep. like, they, they played, obviously, Bama in the SEC title game, then the national title game. They played Oregon and LSU this year. Georgia also moves the ball, but they allow teams to move the ball inside. They uh, throw the ball in the seven games that Georgia's played inside since 2019. Georgia's thrown for 308 yards. They've allowed opponents to throw for 322. Georgia's gained 432 yards overall. Opponents have gained 411. So this is, you know, they're better the last two years than they were the first two years. But they're still good. And they were still defense first. My bottom line is this, Stephen, just looking at the numbers. Indoors, people move the ball on Georgia. Indoors, Ohio State moves the ball at a very, very high rate. My equation on that is I think Ohio State is going to move the ball against Georgia. They've got to score. They've got to cash stuff in. Red zone, sometimes if you don't have a run game you can rely on, that gets a little hairy inside the 20. We all know that. I don't have much doubt, Stephen, that Ohio State is going to move the ball on an excellent defense. And I think the idea of, yes, we are in the state of Georgia and we are 70 miles from Athens, Georgia, and Georgia is very familiar with this stadium. I think Ohio State would play this game in this stadium 100 times out of 100. I think the crowd is not going to be that much of an issue because there's going to be a lot of Ohio State fans here. I and I think the idea of just get them inside. They haven't been inside because they haven't won they haven't won the East and gotten to the Big 10 title game. Get them inside. Get them inside and see what happens. I think it is obvious and also perhaps undersold. Am I making too big of a deal about a roof? No. Nah. I mean, we spend a lot of the season saying that when we say this is why nobody can beat them in the Big Ten championship game because once they get inside, it becomes a track meet. I think because they're going back inside, when Ryan Day is talking about playing loose and being aggressive and stuff like that, you can believe him that he's actually going to get back to that because there's nothing he has to consider. He doesn't have to consider, oh, what's the wind like today? Or is it raining? Is it cold? How are his players responding during warm-ups to the weather, whether it's hot, cold, or indifferent? He can just call plays because it's a controlled environment, which is what makes postseason fun is you can take the weather out of it. And just, even when they played in Miami, it's kind of a dome. It's like an open sunroof, but it's kind of, you know, built yeah. like it's supposed to be a dome. It's like, it's a weird situation. Even, you know, in, in Arizona, it, they can open it up if they really want to, <clears throat> but controlled environment right. means there's no excuses. CJ Shaw can't be like, oh, I threw a perfect ball, the wind just took it. Or it was a little slippery that day, so they didn't catch the ball because we don't have gloves on because we're trying to catch it. Or fumbling, it can't be an issue. Missing field goals can't be an issue. Ryan Day can't take half his playbook and throw it out the window because he can't use it that day. Teams aren't going to load the box because you can only run the ball. So it I don't know what it means against Georgia in terms of success rate, but I do know it means that they can try anything they want to try, especially since unlike in 2019, they're not practicing at one place and then playing in another place. They're actually practicing inside Mercedes-Benz all week. So they're going to be very used to it by the time we get to Saturday playing in that environment. So Georgia allows people to move the ball in domes. They don't always allow people to score. 2019, they play 
LSU and Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson in the SEC title game, they lose 37 to 10. But against like that LSU team, 37 is not terrible. Uh, 2019, a bowl game, they beat Baylor. They 26-14. They beat Cincinnati in a bowl game in 2020, 24-21. They uh, lose to Bama in the SEC title game. They give up 41 to Bama. Then they hold Bama to 18 after all their receivers get hurt in the national title game. Oregon, they blow off the field. I'm not, I don't think that's particularly instructive. That was the first game for Dan Lanning as the head coach at Oregon. It was the first game for Bo Nix after yeah. transferring to Oregon. They scored three. Georgia outclassed them, but Oregon was better than that. And then LSU, and this has been this was something that was sort of brought up a lot by the Georgia writers on Tuesday, is that LSU in the SEC title game, it's 50 to 30. Georgia's out to a big lead, and then like LSU winds up kind of hitting some big plays in the second half and putting 30 up. And there were a lot of questions about giving up big plays and that kind of thing. I don't know, Steven. I think like Mar- again, Marvin's eyes, and and I'm I'm working on a story on this for Wednesday morning, so I'm looking up a lot of stuff. You're just better. So I said to Marvin, is there anybody in your family that played a lot of indoor football? And of course, his father, <laughs> Marvin Harrison Sr., played his career with the Indianapolis Colts indoors. And as Junior pointed out, and I didn't even think of this, played at Syracuse, played indoors in college. Like Marvin Harrison Jr. was like, I'm not going outside. Like Marvin Harrison Jr. has probably, probably played more games outside in, you know, a season here. Like his dad never went through this. So just looking, and there's a on, on NFL reference – uh, profootballreference.com. It's their breakdown. I'm just going to go by their stats. They have dome, outdoors, and then retractable roof. So I'm just going to throw out retractable roof because I don't know if it was retracted or not. Marvin Harrison Sr. was just a little better in a dome. Now it's at home. So like I'm, you're, I'm sure you're probably better at home anyway. But he averaged 82.3 yards per game in a dome. He averaged 73.5 outdoors. He averaged... Um, 8.57 yards per target in a dome, 7.78 outdoors. His catch percentage was about the same, but he was just probably like slightly elevated outdoors, right? And that's what I'm envisioning here. I'm, I'm not envisioning like a new Ohio State offense, but I'm envisioning like a slightly elevated best version of themselves. And... I think that's what is required, Stephen. I don't – I am really – we're not making our picks yet. I am really coming around, and I'm, I'm very eager to talk to the Ohio State defensive guys and the Georgia offensive guys on Wednesday. I'm almost coming around to the idea that I think maybe the more difficult matchup for Ohio State in this game is the Ohio State defense trying to stop Georgia because I just have such respect for the way Georgia stitches together an offensive game plan, multiple running backs. Again, I really like Kenny McIntosh, two really scary tight ends. If their receivers are healthier and we've just seen, this is a good Ohio State defense. I don't think it's a great Ohio State defense. I think it's good, and I but I think it can give stuff up. I almost think that's more of an issue for Ohio State, and I do think it's going to be some kind of a track meet, Stephen. And I don't think Ohio State's going to stop Georgia's offense from taking part in a track meet. And I think you're going to get into a a situation where you've got to convert on third down. You've got to convert in the red zone, that kind of thing. But I think both sides are going to move the ball up and down the field. And it's what you mentioned earlier, right? It's the, it's the, it's the thesis of Ohio state football through the eyes of cleveland.com and Buckeye talk Kings of the North. This is a Northern team that has to get through the North to get out into the world. But when it gets out into the world, it is the Northern team best prepared to do that. And really what we mean by that is the world is indoors when it matters. Sometimes it's just sunny, but it's often indoors. And this is what Ohio State has been waiting for. And even your reaction, and I think it would be a common reaction to a lot of people like, oh, yeah, they haven't played indoors in two years. C.J. Stratt has never gotten to do this. Oh, yeah. Like, a, like you realize it, but it's not like at the front of your mind. But it's like, yeah. yeah, they haven't been to the Big Ten title game. And when else would they do it? Minnesota doesn't play in a dome anymore. This is who they are. And as much as that during the – there are times this season, Stephen, when I think they wanted to pretend this isn't who they are. This is who they are. I'm sorry. You're good at this. This is what you do. And this is your best chance to be your best version of yourself. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's – I think it – I think my – and it's not even about wind or snow. 
right? It's it's not really about that. Oh, that that is very much a problem. Can be a, especially the wind can be a huge problem. It's just about the closer to perfect conditions you get, because this is like a finely tuned machine, right? This is mm-hmm. this is precision, and Georgia is a little less precision and a little more smash mouth and a little more okay, like get it in a catch radius of Brock Bowers and he'll do some stuff. This is Ohio state. You've got, especially like on third down, you're trying to throw the ball on third and fourth down to convert, right? They, they missed a fourth down conversion to Cade Stover in the Michigan game. I'm not saying it's because of the weather, but CJ makes probably a throw there. That's 70% good enough that needed to be a hundred percent good enough. I think yeah. the chances of that throw being a hundred percent good enough are higher indoors. I don't know. I'm talking. I'm just saying the same thing over and over again now. Roof, roof. My friend from New Hampshire says roof instead of roof. I actually want to have Ryan Day say roof, roof. My my friend from New England almost says it like a dog barking, like roof, roof. I say roof. So I think the roof matters. Football talk. Disagree. Hey, how about that? Talking about football talk. <laughs> Break it down. So we're talking about architecture now. I think (laughs) – I don't think you're wrong. I think what it does is it presents an opportunity for Ohio State to finally play a complete game because we're 12 games into the season, and I don't know when that happened, when they played a complete game. Because even the Notre Dame game, they couldn't really throw the ball, and so they just started running the ball because they were still trying to prove a point. Uh, The Penn State game, it was ugly for a lot of that. Uh, The Michigan State game, Michigan State stinks on defense and covering covering me. So, of course, they weren't going to be able to cover Marvin and Emeka. Maybe the Wisconsin game was the closest thing we've seen to a complete game, but even that had its pitfalls at times. So, offensively, it's been so long. Maybe the Michigan State game last year, because we thought Michigan State was good, was the last time we saw every aspect of this Ohio State offense working, whether it was the run game and, of course, the pass game as well. If you take away the elements of everything that could get in the way of that, do we finally see that? Now, the question now is, can you still bank on that when you haven't seen it in that long, even if the environment presented to you says you can do it? But I don't know. We haven't seen it. So how how much state – how much stock do you want to put in something you haven't seen in over a year now, even if you are confident in what can happen in that environment? Okay, it's indoors and that matters. Um, let me throw in the fact that as we speak in our 444-person Buckeye Talk ESPN Bowl Mania pool, I'm second. And I know I know there are texters who said, like, well, I'm just going to pick the opposite of whatever Doug picks. So, again – I did a lot of high point games early to jump out to a false lead, but I've done it. I've jumped out to a false lead. If I, at some point, get to first, I'm going to screenshot the standings. I'm going to, I'm going to tear my ACL and lose to Spencer Rattler. That is what is coming for me. But for now, I am in the playoff discussion. I am going to screenshot the standings and make a T-shirt of it to prove that once, for one, it's the greatest accomplishment of my professional and personal life. For once in my life, I was in first place for a brief moment out of 444 people. Thanks, everybody who did it. And the great thing is, is I get to, if I win, I get to be a guest on our own podcast. And I can come in. I'm going to come in. I'm going to come in and look like, oh, my gosh. You guys won't believe what I'm like. You think I'm bad as a host. Wait till I'm a guest. So anyway, thanks to everybody who's being part of that. That's been fun. T-Shoe's in the top 10 also. He'll probably win. And then we'll have T-Shoe on as a guest. Um, let's talk about Georgia defenders. Because there are like some really interesting guys here. And again, I'm. It's sometimes we wind up talking out our stories here, Stephen and I was doing something that I did earlier in the year with the Ohio State linebackers, which is like, I'm just looking for superlatives. I was asking who's the fastest guy in the Georgia defense, who's the strongest, who's the smartest. And I got the answers that I think we all thought we you would get to something like that, which is the fastest is probably Keely Ringo, the corner, future first round pick at corner. The strongest is Jalen Carter. And people were staring at me like, what do you, I don't even understand why you're asking this question. Of course, it's Jalen Carter, the defensive tackle, who is a game changer. And the smartest is Chris Smith, who's the safety, who's a fifth year guy. Just a super interesting safety pairing of like a true freshman in Malachi Starks and a fifth-year guy in Chris Smith, who was like Jaquan Brisker at Penn State, who was like those great glue guy safeties. I'm super excited for the Chris Smith 
uh, CJ Stroud matchup here. But Stephen, you said you were getting vibes from the Georgia defenders about just sort of like believing in in what they do. And again, we didn't get some of the headline names from the Georgia defense. What what really led you to feel vibes and roof? is the headline of the podcast. What led you to really feel those vibes from those Georgia guys? Because, again, they're the defending national champs, and this is the side of the football most responsible for that. What did you really think of them? Yeah, a lot of it was stemmed from the fact that there was a lot of questions for the Ohio State guys about going tempo, and that's been the thing with Ryan Day, I think, for a couple of weeks now, was why they don't go tempo more often. And we really haven't seen them do it religiously since Clemson 2019 when it was – Ryan, 2020, excuse me, when Ryan Day was full-on aggressive Ryan Day and putting his pedal to the metal. And so the the alternative to that is you ask Georgia guys, like, hey, how does tempo affect you? Especially front seven guys with as deep as they rotate, but when you have to get guys stuck on the field, which is what Paris Johnson was talking about. I like going tempo because it doesn't bring new players who have nothing to do with the game onto the game which an offensive lineman would say that because he's out there the entire time while he's going against maybe two or three different defensive ends throughout the game as they rotate guys. And the vibe I got was Georgia welcomes tempo. They like tempo. One, because they're deep, but two, they're in shape. And so if you get stuck out there, uh, uh, Zion Logue, the defensive lineman, he, he brought up the example of the Oregon game when they went tempo and it backfired. Oregon's offensive line got tired. And meanwhile, the Georgia defensive line is like, yeah, come on, keep coming, keep going tempo, keep it up. Come on, let's see how long you can go. And so it is this situation. And so I started asking some some of the Georgia guys, like, hey, when teams go tempo, have you seen opportunities when it's backfired? Oregon got brought up. Tennessee got brought up. All these teams who have decent offenses, they go tempo against Georgia because they don't want them to use that depth. They want to play against tired defensive linemen. And instead of backfires, and that scares me. Because when a six foot five, two hundred and eighty pound man is not afraid of having to play six, seven, eight plays in a row because he knows he's in a good enough shape that it's actually going to backfire, and now your offensive line can't do their job. What does that mean for Ohio State, who hasn't done it consistently all year? And so it's another thing of, hey, are they just going to turn this on against Georgia in the uh, college football semifinal game, and is it going to backfire when we get to the third quarter and? Dewan Jones, because he's 6'9", 360, he's beat. But the defensive end he's got to go up against, even if that's not their strong suit, he's got the upper hand now. What does that mean for Jalen Carter when he's not tired in the third quarter, even though they've been playing tempo, and now you're expecting Matthew Jones and Luke Whipple to be able to keep up with them? And so it's it's I'm not worried about it, but it is something in the back of my mind that maybe think about things a different way because they do have depth, but they don't have to use it if they don't want to if you put them in a situation where they are stuck with the same five, six, seven guys out there. And as we mentioned before, Jalen Carter – Injured at times this season, games yep. early in the year when he wasn't playing as much, has played much more, many more snaps the last four games or so, getting more active out there. Um, that idea of Jalen Carter being a problem and how they try to affect quarterbacks, I, I asking Glenn Schumann, one of the co-coordinators, about that, and he was just saying they just want to make whatever a quarterback likes to do, they want to make him not be able to do the thing he likes to do. And they really have played – some interesting quarterbacks yeah. this year from Bo Nix to Spencer Rattler, South Carolina to Hendon Hooker, obviously at Tennessee to Will Levis at Kentucky. They, they really have gone through some interesting guys. And I, I think they are also, there also certainly was an opinion, which again, like I think is true. Actually, it's always one of these things. Sometimes Steven, it's hard to like form a team opinion, which also is like, why it's hard to form like 13 people in a room picking the playoff because they're mm-hmm. 13 individual people. It's like, what's the group's opinion? It's like, well, the group has seven different opinions. How would you like me to express this? There were definitely some Georgia defenders that I was talking to who were like, yeah, CJ Stroud's a pocket passer. Like he's, he'll move around a little bit, but he's not really trying to run. And then there were some other guys who were like, oh no, he's got legs. And I think Will Muschamp was bringing up, you look, he had like the run. He's bringing up the run from like his freshman year, yeah. right? Like the first thing he ever did, he's bringing up like yeah. the Northwestern run. And it's like, well, that's the two, like, in his life. You know, Christmas was talking about, yeah, he's got legs, he's got legs. So some of the guys were talking about that, yes, C.J. Stroud does have that ability that to run, and other guys were saying, like, no, we kind of know he's a pocket passer. That's not what he wants to do. But Glenn Schumann was talking about the idea, like, we just want whatever a quarterback wants to do, 
we want to make him uncomfortable. But I, I did feel like there is a, I don't know. I mean, they're not going to be like, they stink. Everyone's going to have respect for each other here. But I do think like they, I, I thought I heard a lot of CJ Stroud puts the ball where he wants to put it. He's really accurate. He trusts his receivers. Glenn Schumann went on and on about Marvin Harrison Jr. And that almost like the route running and the speed and the kinds of things mm-hmm. that a receiver uses to get open. Let's take that almost for granted. Like, of course he has that. But his main thing was even if he's covered, it might not matter that like there will be times when he's actually open. And then there will also be times when he's covered and it still won't matter because this guy makes contested catches, that kind of thing. You know, people talk about like CJ's connection and his trust in his receivers and all that kind of thing that you can see that connectivity when it's at its best from the Ohio State passing game. And, and, you know, the Tennessee stuff comes up a lot. Tennessee just comes at you in such a different way. They have such wide splits with the receivers. They put four receivers on the field a lot of the time. That's not what Ohio State does. I think Ohio State says that. Well, yeah, we get it, but we're not we're not Tennessee. And even George is like, yeah, well, we get it, but they're not Tennessee. I, I, I did sense, Stephen, that, like, these guys do think that Ohio State's pretty good at the thing Ohio State does, and they know – that they're going to have to be on it, which which to me is I think it's so vital for CJ to be able to move and slide in the pocket without leaving the pocket. Yes, he can make throws on the move. At times, they do roll the pocket with him. Obviously, Ryan Day will call that every now and then, and he certainly can do that. I do think he's at his, at his best when he's in rhythm, which again is Glenn Schumann was saying that people were talking about CJ being a rhythm passer and like you, you get going. Mm-hmm. Glenn Schumann was talking about like all quarterbacks kind of like to do that. It's like, you know, you, you hit one throw and you get rolling, but CJ, I think we all see that, how that happens with him. I think CJ has to not bail. I think he has to slide, stay on his spots and make the throws he wants to make and believe in his guys. And I think Georgia understands that, but Georgia has spent the entire season making quarterbacks do things they don't want to do. There is this, you know, there's the public has decided that CJ needs to run it four or five times to make some plays. I guarantee you Georgia would love it if CJ ran it four or five times to try to make some plays because then he's going to end up with like 12 yards and Ohio State's probably going to lose. I do agree. There was, it was complimentary while also the coaches were complimentary. The players may be a little bit more, we acknowledge he can do this, but we are who we are because much of, I, he, I asked him about the wide receivers because so you got to do that. And he said they're all 6'2", 205. They look like outside linebackers who can run. And then he got he talked about Mecca Buka and Marvin Harris's, uh, Harrison Jr.'s catch radiuses and a lot of the stuff that it's – there is a – I asked I asked one of the players about what's tougher, going up against a guy who you do everything right and he scrambles and he gets 12 yards anyway or going up against a guy where you do everything right but by the time you get there, the ball's already gone. And they did say that, – that is the one thing that does interest me. They did say they would rather go up against a guy where they're going to stay in that pocket, and even if you get there and the ball's already gone. Because in those situations, there's going to be other times where the ball is not gone, and then you can get him off their spot. And as you're talking about, make him do something he doesn't want to do. And so the, I, I agree with you. CJ is going to have to move around in that pocket and slide sometimes. But I do think the more on schedule this passing game can stay, the better. Because – uh, Will Muschamp said something interesting to me. There's nothing more riveting than rushing the passer. There's also nothing more tiring than rushing the passer. So if Jalen Carter and company are constantly rushing C.J. Stroud, but the ball's gone by the time they get there, that's going to wear them down almost as much as going tempo is because that does start to get to you when you keep trying to hit the quarterback and you can't hit the quarterback. What did you think? I think you spent the time at C.J.'s table again for people – I don't know if you really, oh, what was the setup for the interviews? It was always like a big fight. There's always kind of a fight between the people who write and the people who have cameras. And everybody, like at some point in your journalism career, you get hit in the head with a camera and then you yell at a cameraman and like you get in a fight and TV guy hits you in the face with a microphone. It's just part of the deal. So they had, we had 45 minutes with each set of people, the Ohio State offensive group and the Georgia defensive group, and they split them in half. So there was one room where they were up at a podium and they were sitting at a table and the TV people could get their TV shots and they were in there for 20 minutes. And then there was a side room where the three, three or four people were at individual tables and you actually weren't even allowed to take video in there. Like you cannot have Mm -hmm. a video in here. This is to get interviews and get information. And then they swapped them. So we, 
Then they transcribe all the quotes. So you know what they said at the table, but you're off mm-hmm. on the side room. Love Even it. though we talk into microphones, we're on the side room in the reporters where you're kind of getting, you're having more like conversations and hopefully getting better information than when people are uncomfortable with lights in their face and a bunch of cameras staring at them. So that's how we did this. So then, you know, you're trying to move around people or like Stephen takes this guy, I take this guy. So I was at Kevin mm-hmm. Wilson, I think, for a long time, and you were at CJ for a long time. Vibe us on CJ. How did CJ seem on Tuesday? Focused, prepared, irritated. And I think Fuck in I that talk. order. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in that order because, first of all, shout out to the Peach Bowl. I think this is the most genius setup I've ever seen in my life. I think all bowl games. On this day, on the days when you're just getting the stars, this is beautiful. I love it. I thought CJ did a great job of talking about his preparation for Georgia and what he needs to prepare. And, you know, talking about Keely Ringo and talking about the secondary and talking about the front and, Jaylen, you know, all that basic stuff. But – Ohio State's in this interesting spot right now where sometimes people want to ask about Michigan. And it's like, yes, that's a hypothetical, but Georgia's the reigning national champion. We should be focusing on that. But then also he was getting like NFL questions. Like there was one guy who was asking, hey, a scout told me they love everything about you, but you don't run enough. And it's you could, where I was standing next to him, you can kind of see all his body language. And so he would get irritated at some of these questions, whether it was him running or what some NFL scout might think or Michigan and his legacy there or just the fact that Ohio State's an underdog in this game and they never were from a place of an underdog. It, it felt – CJ wears his heart on his sleeve a little bit. I think we have all mm-hmm. come to that conclusion on him. And sometimes he can show you his emotions on when he's happy and when he's irritated with a situation. And it felt like it was 15 minutes of irritation because there was a lot of – questions about what he isn't or what he doesn't do and not enough questions about, Hey, CJ, how are you? It wasn't enough questions about his mind, which you and I especially love to get into with him is how he's breaking stuff down. And it wasn't enough questions about that. It was a lot more questions about narratives and things that whether he cares about it or not, he'd rather not sit there and have a conversation with people. He doesn't know about it. And that's, that's what I think that was a good way to put it. When he got a chance to talk about Georgia, it was great. The other times, they were almost answers of like, bro, why are you asking me that right now? Yeah. I think that the the most irritation I think I, you felt from the Georgia guys were when they were asked about some of the things they gave up in the second half against LSU in the SEC yeah. title game when they gave up a bunch of stuff. After they had a huge lead, I even was like, well, didn't the LSU quarterback get hurt? Like the backup guy came yeah, in. Yeah, the backup guy like, was the one throwing it around. It was like, all right, like does this actually tell you anything? Of course, nobody wants to give it up, but they still won by 20. But I am intrigued by, you know, it just feels like there have been times this year, Stephen, where it's just been a little difficult for Ohio State to take some of those shots down the field that people, Mm -hmm. they just maybe don't want to let them do that. And then again, sometimes you get reminded of stuff. You know, I was going back, I was rewatching the 2007 Ohio State LSU game, that national championship. There's a particular thing I would still like to do this week. I don't know if I'll be able to do it or not, but I might try to do. That relates to that game. Uh, but then even like going back and watching the Ohio State Clemson semifinals, there are plays against Clemson where the play is Justin, see how far you can throw it and a receiver <laughs> will run under it. And you think like, how often have we seen Ohio State do that this year? How like I can't. There's not a picture in my head, Stephen. Like I, I, everybody listening, right? Picture. Ohio State comes in in either of those games and picture Justin the way he sort of sets his feet and steps up in the pocket and looks like he's having a contest for who can throw the ball the farthest. Mm-hmm. And then the ball is coming down and there's Chris Olave behind two defenders, right? I think, can't you see that in your head? I don't, now CJ hit the deep ball against Michigan to Marvin, right? That was a nice sideline throw, right? That one yeah. worked. But like this idea, I'm very intrigued by the discussion around Marvin was talking about this a lot, the aggression of the Georgia corners. And this is Keely Ringo and Kamari Lasseter, who I think they believe can line up and cover dudes. And it won't always be man. It won't always be straight up, but it will be sometimes. And they're aggressive. They're aggressive. Good. But can Ohio state make them aggressive? Bad. And I'm very intrigued of, okay, whatever they design, we're going to have six guys block Jalen Carter and CJ. You have to stay in there. Like Luke and Donovan and Matthew Jones, who, again, seems like he's on track. That was one thing we didn't talk about off the top. Kevin Wilson's like, hey, 
Matthew Jones had kind of a bad ankle sprain, but he's been practicing for the last two weeks. He seems good to go. The interior offensive line, huge. You guys have to hold up because we think somebody, we think somebody's going to get loose on this play. Mm-hmm. And that aggression, Stephen, the idea that because sometimes some of the, I just feel like some of the defenses that Ohio State's tried to throw against, they haven't been super aggressive. It's been like, okay, well, we're going to keep everything in front of us, run the ball, do whatever. We're not going to let you do that. I think there, there's like a Keeley Ringo thing that is, I think, from the outside is like, man, this guy's a first-round corner. He's physical. He's fast. He's everything you want in a corner. And then I think inside, some of the Georgia you know, fan perspective is like, ah, man, he's maybe given some stuff up this year. That as skilled as he is, there have been some moments they're like, I don't know. I'm just I, – I almost think like an aggressive secondary, Stephen, might be exactly what Ohio State wants again. It's like, good, be aggressive because we'll be aggressive. Let's go aggressive versus aggressive and see if we can hit a double move, see if we can hang in the pocket and try and shot down the field, see if we can believe in our guys to win contested balls in the air. Like, I just – again, it's George is not afraid. I almost think like Ohio State wants a defense that's not afraid. George is not afraid. You're saying vibes. What are the vibes? George is like, we got this. Ohio State, I think for Ohio State, it's like, good, good. We Let's go. Let's do this. Let's let us be us and you be you and let's go. Let's not drop eight. Let's, let's not, you know, keep everything in front of us and make you work down the field. Let's do this already. And I do think it's, there's good about the Georgia secondary. There is. But it's, there's some, not vulnerabilities, but I think perhaps opportunity for the Ohio State offense, and I think they feel that maybe a little bit too. Marvin, I thought, Marvin's respecting these guys. Keely Ringo, he's been asked about Keely Ringo a hundred times. Respects him top to bottom. I think Marvin is ready to go against some corners who are going to be aggressive with him. Becca had a quote that was very interesting to me, and I think it goes on in line with this, what, what you're talking about here. Because I was asking him about, you know, who are some other teams that maybe played aggressive and physical against them. And he brought up Penn State. He said he only saw Joy Porter a couple of times, but Penn State and Iowa were the two that stood out to him, which not shocking. Those are the, probably the best two defenses they played outside played out before Michigan week. There's a handful of teams that took it to us and came with a different energy. There are some teams that are playing that you're playing where you can tell that they're in all of playing Ohio State. They don't really want to be on that big stage. There's a handful of teams that come at you and look at it as an opportunity, which it's he's saying that there are some teams who are going to play you scared, which are typically the drop bait teams who don't want to get beat deep. But then there are the teams where it's, we have the talent to keep up, so let's play football. Georgia is in line with Penn State and Iowa, where they have guys who they trust to keep up, so let's just play football. Does that mean they're going to win every time? No, of course not. Marvin will get his share of victories. Mecca will get his share of victories. But overall, Georgia probably feels that secondary can keep up. So we're not going to see, oh, let's just drop eight and make Ohio State drive up the field because we're scared of getting beat deep because they're not scared of getting beat deep. And that's that's a very, it was a very polite way of saying we've played about nine teams this year who are scared of us. But yeah. that's where we're at now. And now Ohio State is past that. They're on the stage where they're going to play teams who are okay with just playing football. Let me line up my talent against your talent. Let's see who wins. And this is that is super interesting because I think it brings us back to I thought in both the Iowa and Penn State games, it was clunky early, but my main takeaway from both those games was in the end, Ohio State worked it out. It took some time, but in the end, they did mm-hmm. what they had to do in the second half and they ended up winning those games pretty big even though they were close at halftime. Georgia's offense is significantly us. Brian Smart's not the offensive coordinator for Georgia, so Georgia's offense is ridiculously better <laughs> than Iowa, but it's, and it's also better than Penn State's, right? Because Stetson Bennett's better than Sean Clifford. Like, like Sean Clifford is sort of like, is a little bit like Big Ten Stetson Bennett, but Stetson Bennett's better, more athletic, not as – not as banged up as Sean Clifford always seems like. And they just have, again, they have a bunch of dudes. Penn State always has dudes, but I, th- I think George is better. So, I again, I think you. my clear thing is I think Ohio State's going to move the ball. But if it takes them time to work it out, Stephen, if it takes mm-hmm. them the time it took against Iowa and Penn State, I think it's possible that George is going to be out to a lead in a more significant way because I think the Georgia yep. offense is significantly more dangerous, obviously, than Iowa, but also more than Penn State. 
as much as I like Parker Washington, as much as you like those running backs this year, as much as their left tackle is really good. Like there's a lot of reasons like Penn State. Georgia just stitches it together really well. It may be a case where you believe in the Ohio State defense. I do believe the idea that sometimes the receivers will get the Georgia DBs. Sometimes the DBs will get them. But you have to give the receivers a chance to win, and you can't be down 21 by the time they win. So Jim Knowles and this Ohio State defense is going to have to hang in in case it takes a little time. But I do Mm -hmm. not think in the end, I do not think Ohio State will be stymied. I do not think Ohio State will be shut down for 60 minutes. They have played good defenses inside, and that has never been the case. I think they have to throw the win to win. I think they have that opportunity. I think this is almost what they want. Right team, right challenge, right place. But if it takes time, Jim Knowles has to give Ryan Day the time. And that's where and that's what we're going to talk about. That's the Wednesday conversation. That's the Thursday pod. That's Stetson Bennett. That's Kenny McIntosh. That's this really good Georgia offensive line. That's Brock Bowers. That's Darnell Washington. And that's Tommy Eichenberg and JT Tuomolowau and Denzel Burke and Jim Knowles and everybody else trying to stop this, Ronnie Hickman and everybody else. I, I almost think that matters more because I, I do think there are going to be – I think there be, could be a pick six in this game. I think there could be two 70-yard touchdown passes in this game. Like I think there might be fireworks on both sides. And there might be fewer fireworks on the opposite side, but the Ohio State defense can't can't let Todd Monken put together eleven play seventy five yard seven minute drives all day, or it's not going to work. But I'm getting it. I'm I'm. This is what we wanted. Ohio State offense, Georgia defense. It's what we wanted. It's what we wanted. It's what we wanted. It's in the right place, and it's not going to be sixty mile per hour winds. We got it a year later than when we wanted it, but. I think I'm starting to agree with that. There's a chance that this game might be played in the high 30s and low 40s, and, and that's probably a good thing for Ohio. The higher the score of the game is, the more trust you have in Ohio State to win this. But I do agree with the fact that, and we'll get into more of this on the Thursday pod, but Jim Knowles has to give Ryan Day the type of chances that he was giving him early in the Michigan game before that first big play hit. It can't be yeah. early Penn State game, or this is not going to be pretty. So reasons to, to be excited. I do think I also – we'll get to this, I think, maybe in our picks pod. Like, Ryan Day's whole thing about, like, a guy score in the 40s in the playoff is like, I don't actually know if that's true. I was, like, looking at the scores, and I was like, not really? There's actually yeah. a bunch of games, like, in 31? <laughs> I think that's the thing that more just applies to Ohio State just needs to score 40 points than it is just in the playoff. It, I thought – I think it's a valid point, but it's not a point that is – that applies to every single playoff team. It's just so interesting because there are such, there are just two versions of playoff teams in this nine year playoff era. There's like the Bama Georgia model, which is like, well, no, those games aren't in the forties. And then there's like the, the Joe Burrow, LSU, Oklahoma, when they're rolling like Ohio state at its best Deshaun Watson model. And it's like, well, yeah, those, but, but now we're, we're having a collision of, of the two here. Right. And so I, I don't think anybody thinks if it's 21 14 that it's going to be Ohio State with the Ohio State will have the 14 points. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So it's can, can you get it? But I don't know. When Ryan Day said, oh, you got to get the 40, I was like, yeah, yeah, 40, 40, 40. And then I like looked at the scores and I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's like five teams that have scored in the 40s and one. So, and it's also throwing it off because it's like I was doing the reverse of like, what was the score of the losing team? So what would you have had to, scored to beat the losing team and then it was like i don't know washington got shut out so they get scored one it's like ohio state State got shut out there's some there's been some really kind of playoff teams that couldn't compete and that throws it off too when you're trying to do stuff so anyway uh but we'll get to that side of the ball that's who we will talk to on wednesday that's who will be what we'll be focusing on on the thursday podcast live here from atlanta we certainly anticipate that nathan baird will be joining us for the Thursday podcast, which means the three of us will be back together. You guys can get the text. Just jump in. I mean, we, you know, come in for free. 614-350-3315. College Football Survivor Show did uh, Apple Podcast subscribers this week. Uh, the bonus episode that we always do, Shahan and I drafted the 20 best players in the playoff. The 20 best players in the playoff. It wasn't like you had to build an actual team. It was just like collect the best dudes. And 
Shahan took a surprise guy, number one. I took an Ohio State guy, number two. Steven, do you want to guess who I took for best players in the playoff? To Marvin. I took Marvin. Yeah. So it's one of these things again, and then people are like, well, then why didn't you vote for Marvin for the Heisman? I was like, well, it's not the exact it's same. Not the thing same whatever. It's like, so, <laughs> so I did. I, I had Marvin Harrison Jr. number one on my list, and uh, I mean, and I'm just, I'm trying to get you guys to go listen, but also you guys, you're loyal Buckeye Talk listeners, you get some of this. My top three were, my top four: Marvin Harrison Jr. one, Jalen Carter two, Olululua Timmy, the center from Michigan three, and CJ four. I don't have a problem with that list. So it's sort of like the three guys who represent what those three teams do best. It's like Ohio State passing game, Georgia defense, Michigan run game. Mm. And then it was like, well, then and also they're like CJ is really good. So I thought that was an interesting way to analyze it. It told us a little bit about the talent levels of the four teams involved. And then uh, Shahan and I will be back with the regular pod on the College Football Survivor Show this week as well. We'll be doing this every day. As always, we appreciate you guys making us part of your Ohio State fandom and part of your week. For Stephen Means, for Nathan Baird, who we hope is uh, driving safely to Georgia and will be here sooner than later, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.